Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. As we continue our look at the armor of God in this series we've entitled The Spiritual Warfare, as we look at um, each of these aspects of the armor that God has given us, that God gives us to help us protect us against the evil one's attacks. And this morning we come to the breastplate of righteousness. It says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13. Picking up uh, there, uh, if you have it up on the screen, I don't have it on my sheet. If you're able to uh, jump that over, um, Bryce, that'd be great. Super. There, this is God's word. Read along with me as I read out loud. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. And then it says this. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. The breastplate of righteousness. Well, it was um, early in the morning when, uh, in L.A. when a motorcycle policeman named uh, Bob Vernon saw a red pickup speed through a stop sign. And Officer Vernon turned on his emergency lights, his warning lights, and radioed that he was in pursuit. And the pickup pulled over, and the officer approached. And meanwhile, the truck driver had begun to go into a bit of a panic. You see, he had um, only mere minutes before had come out of a convenience store, having robbed the place, and had a sack sack of uh, stolen money sitting in the uh, seat uh, next to him as well as a handgun that he had used in the robbery. Well, the officer, Officer Vernon, walked up to the car and said, Good morning, sir. May I see your... And that's as far as he got. Officer Vernon never finished the sentence. The driver shoved his handgun out the window, put it at the officer's near his chest, and fired at point-blank range. Officer Vernon fell back seven feet, landed without moving. But a few seconds later, to the shock of the criminal, the officer raised his arm and made two shots into the vehicle, one taking a bullet through the leg of the driver who began immediately to surrender. What saved Officer Vernon on that day? Well, it was dozens of layers of something called Kevlar, the super strong fabric used in bulletproof vests. Only half an inch of it can stop a bullet cold. Bob Vernon's story illustrates what is equally true for us in the spiritual world. That there is, we need protection from the bullets of the evil one. They didn't have bullets in Paul's day, so later on in the passage he's going to talk about fiery, flaming arrows, but bullets fits for our day and age. Last week, Avery talked about putting on the belt of truth, and the belt of truth is is the foundation piece of the armor of God. In the old days, when you had an armor, all of these things would connect to your belt, and like your sheath, your breastplate, there was a means, it was kind of the base, and so the base for all fighting against spiritual assault is the truth of God's. If you lose God's truth, you lose all the other pieces of the armor. But having dealt with the truth now, we now see this extra piece of of the defense that we have against Satan and his attacks. And this morning we look at this thing called the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to simply look at what is the breastplate covering. What is it protecting? And then we're going to talk about its protective strength. What is this righteousness that is making this breastplate strong for us in the midst of attack? And then lastly, we're just going to spend some time applying 
this idea, this breastplate of righteousness to our, our lives. So what is protected first and foremost? These, these questions we're going to use this morning. First question is, what is protected by the breastplate of righteousness? The word breastplate in the Greek is the word thoraka. Now, if you're uh, someone who knows your uh, biology, that is the root word for the thorax, which is not just a character in a Dr. Seuss book, but is a part of your body. A thorax particularly refers to this area underneath the clavicle, underneath uh, the, the throat, all the way down, down to uh, the waist, but are particularly thinking about the lungs and the heart and what it protects there. It was really, what, what this is referring to is that it, what breastplate covers for you is your core, your core. Andy was on sabbatical recently, and he was supposed to do a lot of working out, and uh, one of the things that he did, I, I, as you can see, he looks like it, and, um, and, and one of the things he was supposed to be doing is he was talking to one of our, our very many um, athletic kind of folks here in the church who coach athletes, and, and he was dismayed over his progress, and this person asked him, well, have you been working out your core? And Andy said, I don't like to work out my core. <laughs> but the core is really important. If you know anything about being in shape, is the core is the core of getting in shape. You can do bicep work all you want, but if you do not work out your core, you're going to be easy to push over. Now, Paul is using this physical metaphor to re- refer to something in our physical, or I'm sorry, not our physical, our spiritual being. And understanding, the ancient understanding of the, the core of your being is your guts. That spiritually what they understood that to be is the heart of man. That they would use that as a metaphor as being this is the, the, the seat of your desires and your motivations and your affections. Here's what one commentator said about how the Bible uses this phraseology of, of the, the core or the, the guts. The Bible uses the heart to refer to the seat of deep motives and emotions. People in Paul's day believed that the organs, such as the heart and the liver, were the center of the affections. Oddly enough to think about that. Emotions such as joy or anger or sadness originated in these organs. And so when when the Bible talks about heart, that's what it's talking about. Not your, your love language. It's talking about your desires, at the deepest level, your motivations, your fears. In this spiritual warfare, it says that we, the evil one, is seeking to attack the heart, the core of our being. It says earlier on in the passage in, in verse 12 that the evil one is wrestling with us. That means that we are in hand-to-hand combats. And while the head is something that you can get to, it's going to deal a death blow, but it's a lot easier to hit the core of someone's body. And the place in this combat that is the evil is most likely to go after is the heart of man. The heart of man. He's going to attack the core, the seat of your desires and your affections, because he knows that if he can get at your heart, he can affect everything else in your life. Proverbs 4.23 says that this, therefore, we have to protect the heart. What's it say there in Proverbs 4.23? It says that out of the heart is the wellspring of life. Out of your affections. Out of, you always do what you most desire. And so the evil one would love to attack your heart, your motivation, your desires, your affections. In other words, everything we think or do flows out of our heart. And the core, you start with the core and you strengthen that and you got to protect that. Now, we heard this language, at least when I was growing up, when you heard the language of protect your heart, what was that almost always, if you're of my generation, what was, what was that, that phrase used in relation to? 
romantic relationships. We are always very obsessed in dating relationships in high school and in college about protecting our hearts. The girls were always supposed to protect their hearts, and guys were supposed to be protecting their hearts as well. I don't know who was supposed to protect our hearts, but we were very, it was very important to be protecting our hearts. Now, no one really explained that very clearly. Never quite had an understanding of what that is, but looking back, here's what I think it meant, is that we were to be careful with our emotions and that we were not to be, get overly entwined in a relationship that was, well, let's face it, ultimately probably not going to last, which was probably true. Now, to bring this phrase, protect your heart, out of the high school relationship realm and into the spiritual realm, what this is saying is that we need God to help us protect our heart from the evil one's attacks who would like to twist our deepest desires, our deepest affections. And I actually want to bring this even more so, I think, out of the opaque into something more clear, which is that the breastplate of righteousness, by protecting our affections, that the affection that God most wants us to protect is our joy, our joy. And that the breastplate protects our joy in Jesus. If you remember when we talked about a couple weeks ago about the strategies of the evil one, it says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But what does Jesus give? But I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. It refers to the joyful and abundant life. The goal of the evil one by attacking our hearts is to steal your joy, to destroy your joy. Broadly speaking, this is what he wants. And in particular, to steal your joy in the goodness of God over you. That he wants to deceive you in believing that there is life and joy and abundance in something other than Jesus. What the evil most wants to do is attack your heart so that you don't experience joy in your Christian life. And ultimately, he wants to rob you of Jesus himself because that is the core of your joy. And he is happy to rob you of joy by robbing you of Jesus by turning your boast your righteousness, your joy upon yourself, upon what you do, upon what you have in this life. He's willing to use things, whether it be religious or irreligious. And so that is what he's trying to do, to twist your desires and your affections. And that brings us nicely to the next question I want to ask this morning, which is what is the strength? What is the strength of the breastplates? What is the strength of the breastplates? It's righteousness. It's called the breastplate of righteousness. Your heart is protected by having righteousness. The joy is protected. Your joy is protected by having righteousness. But this is a critical question. Whose righteousness? Now, what is righteousness? Before we get to that question, what is righteousness? Righteousness is, in a short, it is being right. It is being acceptable. In other phraseology, it is being just. That in a court of law, that you owe nothing, that you have you're perfect and right in the eyes of the law. Righteousness means that you're presentable before God and others. So where do, you, where do you get this righteousness that protects you in an attack from the evil one who would love to steal your joy and would like to steal your confidence in the Lord? Now, there are two options for finding righteousness. There is, the first is the righteousness that you produce. The righteousness you produce. Now, what kind of righteousness have you produced for yourself? Have you produced enough to have confidence so that when the evil one comes into your life and says, ah, 
You have no right to God. You have no right to a relationship with Jesus. Do you get to look and say, no, 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 no. Look, I have every right to be in God's presence because of what I have done. What's the, what's the level of righteousness that you need to get to in order to be confident that nothing can ever take you from Jesus? Well, here, Jesus actually tells us. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, that means you will never be accepted in God's presence. You'll never be right in his presence. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, if you're not familiar with the scribes and the Pharisees, let me talk to you about them. There, your righteousness has to surpass them. That would be like saying your righteousness has to surpass that of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and the Amish, or you're not going to heaven. No one was more serious about being righteous and keeping the law than the Pharisees. In the law of God, there were 248 prohibitions. Those are things you were not supposed to do. And there were 360 or so admonitions, that is things that you had to do. And what you couldn't do and were required to do, and they were committed to keeping every single one of them. And not only that, but in order to help them keep every single one of them, they wrote law book after law book after law book to describe what it looked like to keep each of those admonitions and prohibitions. They had something like 60 law books, binders of laws. And so this is who you have to compete with. Are you this righteous? Are you more righteous than them? How are you you comparing to that? How are you doing? Have you kept the Sabbath day perfectly? Have have you ever worked on the Sabbath day? Have, Have you ever stolen anybody's time? or cheated in any way, if the evil one seeks to steal your joy and rob you of confidence by saying, you are not acceptable to God, you are guilty of law-breaking and condemned by God, do you have enough righteousness to look at him and say, no, I'm good, look at it, look what I have done, look at the things I haven't done. Now, there's people in our, in our world who try to do this. You guys remember Lance Armstrong? He, drove a, he rode a bicycle. That's one with two wheels. He rode a bicycle. You might remember him. He said, he said this when asked in an interview about you know, being judged by God and the years in which he was saying that he, was, he never doped and he never did anything wrong as he, as he got ready for bike races. He said, at the end of the day, if there is indeed a presence to judge, I hope I will be judged on whether I lived a true life. Not whether I believed in a certain book or been baptized. I hope that at the end of my life, if there is someone to judge me, I'll hope I will be judged by whether I was true. Now, how's that working out for him? He's known as one of the biggest cheaters in the history of sports. And he lied for years and years and years about this. So I'd ask you the same thing. How's your righteousness working for you? Are you beating the Pharisees? Now, I'm going to assume you aren't feeling super confident right now about your own personal righteousness, and that perhaps your righteousness has some creaks and some cracks, kind of like your body does, and it makes you not want to pull the full weight of your confidence and joy on what you have done. So Paul, Paul came to the same exact place that maybe you're feeling right now, and he decided that 
his confidence in his law keeping wasn't going to do anything for him. And he actually had very graphic language about what he thought about his past law keeping. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, picking up in verse 4. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and he said this, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to list his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he went on to say this about that law keeping. But whatever, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And how does he count them? As rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but only that which comes, that comes from law keeping, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in him. In that verse, the apostle is distinguishing between these two types of righteousness. One that is worthless, which is his, and which is yours. My own righteousness doesn't do anything for me to make me right with God, and therefore Paul calls it rubbish. In Isaiah, what does Isaiah say? He says, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. These things that we do to, in the hopes of being righteous, we are unable, are unable to stop the bullets of Satan's accusations and his condemnation of your life. That you may regard yourself as holy, as holy, as holy can be, but when you stand up in the law court with the evil one prosecuting, it's not going to go well for you. But Paul says there's a better righteousness. There's a righteousness that compared to mine, mine is rubbish, but there's a righteousness that is of infinite value. Not a righteousness that I have earned, that I have produced, but a righteousness that he has earned and he has produced for me. We, put, we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 earlier, a couple verses before that, it says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, you have to keep the law, he's saying. The law isn't just done away with entirely. You have to keep it. Somebody has to keep it. And he said this, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said, I came to perfectly keep all of those laws that the Pharisees and the scribes think that they're keeping. He came and kept it all. What you and I could not do, he did. And if, listen, if you want to stay on the good side of God's law or any law, you have to keep the law. For example... If you are driving around town and the speed limit is 50 miles per hour, if you want to remain on the good side of the law, you want to be just and right in the eyes of the law, you have to drive below the speed limit. But suppose you don't obey, as I'm sure some of you are wont to do. And suppose you're going 85 and you get pulled over and you get a ticket. So now how do you get on the good side of the law? You pay your ticket. You pay the penalty. In other words, there's two requirements to be on the good side of the law. One, obeying the law, and where you haven't obeyed the law, that you pay the penalty. And this is why Jesus came. That Jesus came to pay the penalty for your lack of law keeping. That he paid your ticket of your sin. But that is only half the gospel story. He didn't simply just pay for the things that you didn't do. He was actually righteous on your behalf. That means 
And I I describe it in our membership class every year, multiple times a year, which means as we often think of the Christian life as being, I'm at negative 100 and Jesus on the cross brings me up to zero and the rest of the Christian life is I'm trying to add to the zero in the accounts. But that is not how the Christian life works. The Christian life works this way. The cross brings you up to zero and then the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put into your account so that when God looks at you, he sees you as acceptable and righteous. That means when you read the gospels and Jesus has compassion on the lowly and the weak, you had compassion on the lowly and the weak. That's on your record. The big theological 50 cent word for this is imputation, where Jesus takes his record of righteousness and he puts it on your account. He created it and produced it and has given it to you. The clearest place we see this in the scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin. That means he took your sin upon himself so that we might become, this is your being, your identity, you might become the righteousness of God. That is who you are. And so we read it this morning, one of the most beautiful and profound statements in the Heidelberg Catechism chapter, verse, or question 60, it asks this question, and I'm gonna read it slowly so you know what you read this morning. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, that although my conscience And the evil one accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and I have never kept any of them. That means you haven't kept any of them perfectly. And I am still prone always to do evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes, that means he gives it on my record, to me the perfect satisfaction, the perfect righteousness and the holiness of Christ as if I had never committed any sin but instead had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ fulfilled for me. This is the righteousness that gives you confidence. Not yours, his. You will never fulfill the law. People come and say, I I can't be a Christian because I'm not good enough. And you wanna say, duh, ding, 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 winter chicken dinner, you have got the first step, you're right. You can't do it. Now cling to Jesus. My only hope in life and death is not that I will be judged by whether I lived a true life or by my resume, but I am judged by his resume. And so when you come into the courtroom of God, you don't lay down your law keeping, you lay down the law keeping of Jesus. You say, I plead what he did for me. And that's why we sang this morning, as we already sang, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's no mention of your righteousness. It's his. His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, like your righteousness, is sinking sand. So you want to have confidence? When the evil one comes, when you're under attack, this is the breastplate of righteousness that you cling to. That Jesus' righteousness is given to you. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning in what we'll call application. How do we utilize the breastplate of righteousness? How do you you put it on? It says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. You already got it. Like the old song says, if you got it, flaunt it. You got the righteousness of Christ, so use it. I'm going to give you three examples. And these are just examples. 
of how you can use the righteousness of Christ in various areas of your life in order to fight the temptations of the evil one and the accusations of the evil one. Here's the first one. Utilize Christ's righteousness against temptations towards self-righteousness. I'm going to give a very broad understanding of this because, listen, we're all trying to produce a righteousness of our own. What, there's a religious kind and there's an irreligious kind. Not, now, it may, look, it may not look religious all the time. Some of you are trying to pursue sexual acceptability. That your rightness is how beautiful you are. Or your romantic prowess and abilities. By being received by your willingness to do certain sexual acts or do and look in certain ways. That your ability, that your rightness is your romantic conquests. That's your rightness. This is how I know I'm acceptable in the eyes of God or the eyes of others. Others are tempted by the evil to seek a righteousness that comes from, let's say, overwork. From workaholism. Your acceptability and your rightness is based on what you can achieve. By what you can make by what you can accomplish. And we tend to think of temptation as the evil one coming to us and saying, and whispering in our ear, take the candy bar in the store. Take, 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 take. But he's far more subtle than that most of the time. He is happy to use good things and twist them. To take your desires for things like work and purpose and twist them, a good thing, and he makes it an ultimate thing. And what do you end up doing? You end up stealing glory from God and stealing time from your children and from your wife, and you steal from service to others, and you make it all about you and what you can accomplish. And then still others are tempted to make their boast their righteousness. That the evil ones loves to use this in a myriad of ways. This is the religious way of doing it. Let me give you an illustration from, about, from Tim Keller who used this and talking about a father who is tempted towards bitterness as a form of his self-righteousness or as a result of his self-righteousness. Keller said he knew a father who was a minister, and this minister had an adult son who had rejected the faith and ran off with a girl and lived with her. And the father had struggled with this for years, so much so that he had grown in bitterness at not just his son, but at this other woman. And, he, and he, why was he so bitter? He often felt guilty about this. He couldn't seem to get over it. He was mad all the time with his son. And he, he fluctuated between anger at his son and then anger at himself for his, how mad he was. And one day someone said to him, why do you feel like you have a right to be mad? And he said this. He said, look at me. I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to call people to faith. And I can't even win my son to the faith. And he, when he said that out loud, his own words convicted him. At that moment, in hearing his own words, he realized he couldn't forgive his son. And he was bitter at his son because his son was undermining his record of righteousness that he needed as a father. That he realized that what he was doing was making his fatherly record of having a good kid and kids who are walking with the Lord as his means of actually promoting his role as a pastor. That if my kids are are good. If my kids are walking with Jesus, then I must be good at this. And he realized that a bitterness that you can't get rid of is often because you have been prevented from getting something that is your righteousness. And so when I ask, let me ask you this. What is the form of righteousness the evil one would love to twist and use in your life? Like the really good things that you look to to make your life work. And let me ask you, what is the things that you look to as being the best things about you? You're a hard worker. 
You're very moral. You vote in all the correct ways. Your ethics are always spot on. What is it? And let me ask you this. What is that righteousness producing in you? Is it producing joy or bitterness? Is it producing security and confidence or is it producing insecurity and defensiveness? What's your righteousness doing to you? Well, here's another application or or example. Use Christ's righteousness when you're criticized. You see, if you're looking to your own righteousness in these situations, it's not going to go well for you. Those who look to the righteousness of Christ can lay aside, to lay aside their performance-based living. But you can also use Christ's righteousness when you're criticized. And for this, I'm just going to give you and see what you can intuit from this illustration. It's simply an example from my life. I'm not going to do a whole lot of trying to connect the dots, but you can do it yourself. A number of years back, I had someone in our church who was, how shall I put it, they were angry with me. And they left the church. And they didn't go quietly. And by that, I don't mean, like, what I'm saying is, like, they weren't just, like, angry at the church. They made it very clear. They are like, we're angry, and we're angry at you. Like, by name. This is who we don't like. And they told me to my face that I was a bad pastor, and that I was mean, and that I wasn't good, and that I was wrong in the decisions that I was making. Now, that's fair. That happens. What's unique about this one was that it ate my lunch. For 18 months... This person moved into an apartment in my head and heart, and I was the one paying the rent. And it was particularly bad on Sunday mornings. I had violent arguments with this person. Every Sunday morning, as I rummaged around in the dark of my house, trying to get ready and showered and dressed and ready to come preach, it got to a place where I would kind of mumble out loud as I'd get up in the morning, and I would kind of look at this person who I'd imagine me right there and be like, oh, hello, it's you again, I figured you'd be here. Now, listen, it, when you get to a place when you're talking out loud to someone who isn't there, you begin to think that you might need to get some help. And so I started talking to my counselor about this. I said, why does this person's criticisms just eat, eat me up in this way? I mean, other people have criticized me, but I can't get over this one. And there was, this was a long road and a lot of conversations, but here's some of the things I learned. One, that there was an apt, aptness to the critique. It was an act of the critic, actually. Remember a couple weeks ago I said the strategies of the evil one, that he will use things that he has been sowing in your story for a very long time. And one of the things I realized is that this, who this person was, their gender, their characteristics, their age, everything about them tapped into some wound of some place where I had not been declared acceptable. The second thing I had to realize was this, that the characteristics of the critique went right to the core of the things I most fear about myself. That I'm not good. That I don't know how to pastor. That I don't make good decisions. That I am mean. That I don't do this well. And they didn't think I was doing it well. And it ate my lunch. Because what was it they were after? They pointed out the very thing that I had looked at from my righteousness and I couldn't get over it. That if I was critiqued for the way I pastor or my lack thereof, and that I was found flawed and failing there, I couldn't do it. 
And for both of these issues, the past relationships and this current pursuit of vocational and pastoral righteousness, I had to plead over a long period of time to go, that's the problem, that's the story this is tapping into, and I need the righteousness of Christ. That person in my past who this person resembled, I can't go back and get that acceptance, but I can have it in Jesus. I may never win it from that person, but I have the voice of my Savior. And listen, there are going to be days in which I may pastor perfectly, but that's a creaky floor. They're very rare, if ever. And I had to come to terms with the fact that yes, yes, that Christ is my righteousness, and if I look to this role, and I look to this position, and I look to my performance, I'm not going to be able to stay because it's too painful. And the battle didn't go away immediately, but slowly you know what happened. The bitterness faded away, and it was replaced with forgiveness for this person. And not only that, but my defensiveness, my defensiveness that made me want to argue with this person every Sunday morning was replaced with repentance because with clear-headed acknowledgement after months of talking about this, I had to come to the realization that I had failed in some ways and I had sinned against this person. And do you see what by clinging to the righteousness of Christ made it safe for me to actually acknowledge that I had failed as a pastor, that I had sinned against this person, and to give grace not only to myself but to this other person who had been my enemy. What's a situation for you that looks like that? Last example. Use Christ's righteousness with, when accused of guilt or when you're guilty. All of these kind of tie together, don't they? The evil one loves for you to wallow in guilt and self-loathing, to remain distant from your forgiving and loving father. Remember, that's what he wants to strip you of more than anything else. Joy in Jesus, in the love and the goodness of God over you. And one of the ways Satan attacks most is to accuse you, to come to you and say, what, you sinned again? In that way, you're no good. How could God ever love someone like you? And this is one of the keys of the attacks of Satan against your heart. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it actually describes the, the evil one this way. It says that he is the accuser of our brothers, and he has been thrown down when he accuses them day and night before God. He loves to point out your flaws. He's really great at it. And here's the thing. He's often right, isn't he? I mean, accusations have more effect on you when they're true, Right? This is what he does when he comes to discourage me over my failures and remind me of my sins and drag me down to the pits of despair. He says, Andrew Henley, you are a... And then there's a voice there. And there's old words. And when Satan attacks us this way, we need a righteousness that does not come from us, but we need a defense that is a righteousness that is outside of us or we're doomed. Your righteousness is like wax. But Jesus' righteousness is a rock. Instead, you put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, and you look at the evil one, you plead the righteousness of Christ. No one knew how to apply the gospel, maybe, in greater distress in front of the evil one better than Martin Luther. Luther would mock the evil one by reminding Satan over and over and over again of his list of accusations could not stand before God. Luther would take every opportunity, I mean every opportunity, and here's one. He would even use moments of bodily function to mock Satan. He said, I resist the devil, and often it is with a fart that I chase him away. And when he tempts me with silly sins, I say, devil, yesterday I broke wind too. Have you written that down on your list as well? 
he mocks the list of condemnation that is against him. But much more seriously, Luther wrote this letter to a guy named Jerome Weller. Weller was a 31-year-old friend who had previously lived in Luther's home. And and Weller was in spiritual despair because of evil attacks. And Luther wrote him this way. He said, Jerome, when the devil throws our sins to up against us and declares that we deserve deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know the one who suffered and made a righteousness on my behalf, and I know his name. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you know that Savior? And it's his righteousness, his righteousness, your confidence, and your joy. Let's pray. Well, we sing a song, Come Thou Found a Lot, that says, oh, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And we tend to think that that means that we've run after a bunch of sins. And that may be true. But probably more than anything else, it means that we've run to something else as our righteousness instead of you. That our wandering heart is, is, is getting out over our skis and believing that it is our righteousness that is the means by which we can defend ourselves. Lord, would you make us defenseless? Would you turn the attacks of the evil one up against him? That when he comes and accuses us of sin and seeks to rob us of our joy, would it actually be turned against him? Because in that moment, would by your spirit, would you make us cling to the cross of Jesus Christ again? And would you usher us in anew and afresh to the experience of embracing Christ's righteousness for us, that you redress us and wash us clean, and, that you, and we cling to that. Would you do that, Lord? And in that way, would you mock the evil one and protect us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.